This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, our unicorn builder is Harrison Rose, co-founder of Paddle, a payments infrastructure provider for SaaS companies that's raised $300 million in funding. Harrison, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. Super excited. Let's go ahead and kick off with just a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, sure. So I'm Harrison. I founded my first business, Paddle, 11 years or so ago when I was 18 with my co-founder, Christian. Yeah, m- many years later, as you introed, we're, it seems like a long time ago, with 300 staff, 3,000 customers globally and, and raised some money. I ran all of kind of go-to-market revenue and strategy there for the decade or so I was in the business. And then, yes, stepped back from full-time in January last year, which was quite intense, having been running the business my entire adult life. And after a short break, I've co-founded a new business called GoodFit, off the back of some of the kind of unique ways we were going to market and using data at Paddle with some encouragement from some friends and investors. Um, very different reasons of starting the two companies. But yeah, that's kind of how I got here, by hook or by crook. Take us back to inside your mind when you were 18. Who inspired you and what inspired you to go out and start a company? That's, that's quite young to start a business. You're much kinder than most people. Most people are like, at 18, why on earth were you trying to solve like payments for B2B software companies? Like People have been a little bit harsher than you. I think I was dragged into it a little bit, if I'm completely honest. Christian, my co-founder, I think always wanted to run a business at the age of like 17 when I first met him, albeit remotely, we didn't meet each other for like a year or two. And he knew everyone's like S1 filings, but back around people's cap tables, like he knew about this world and wanted to be a part of it from a very young age. I kind of got dragged into it and been introduced to, to Christian by a friend and was just very excited to kind of be running a business, if I'm honest. Christian was kind of solving a problem that he'd encountered building software himself. And for those of you listening that don't know, Paddle basically does payments, checkout taxes, recurring billing, all of that fun stuff for software companies. And he'd experienced the pain of not having a solution for those things in trying to build some invoicing software, which was rubbish, by the way, uh, himself back in the day. And I kind of got dragged in to help him with all aspects of running a business and kind of ended up here. I, I don't regret any of it, but to say that I had a plan or knew what I was getting into would be a complete lie to be absolutely what were those early days like? Are there any untold stories or stories that haven't been shared widely that you can, you can share with us? I mean, there's a lot of very unsexy stories that we probably haven't shared. Like, and, and a lot of them probably meet some archetypes. Like, we raised money and, yeah, I didn't know what like a VC was. We raised an angel round from a guy called Mark Pearson, uh, who we met at Hackathon before we started. But I had no idea how we were going to spend this money. Like, Christian and I put ourselves basically on like a minimum wage. I think our runway was like 20 years I used to drive my monitor, which was actually like an LCD television, to and from the office every day in the car. It was like a 50-mile each-way trip. Like We honestly had no idea what we were doing, which I'm really grateful for, actually, both those initial angel investors and even the early-stage kind of institutional funds who backed us because I really felt like they funded our kind of growth and development, both as like operators, but to some degree as people. It is mad to look back on, albeit I'm encouraged to sometimes. But yeah, probably all the archetypes you'd expect, man. What do you think they saw in you and Christian? That is a great question. I think I've heard people don't tell you directly. I've heard some funny stories about Christian. I think one of the quotes that stood out was Christian tells you he's going to change the world. And you look him in the eye and you realize that he's not joking. Like he's a slight madman. 
But I think it was our kind of relentless desire to improve, to learn, to do something with impact. I don't think we, or we definitely didn't know what culture was or what values were in some of those early days. But I think we were hopefully depicting some of the behaviors of some folks who go on to do something pretty cool. Like the actual nature of the business changed quite a lot in what since we started. So I'm, I'm pretty sure they were just backing hopefully us as individuals in the early days. And we eventually stumbled upon something that, that worked, I think. When did it start to feel like things really were working? Was that one month in? Was that one year in? Or did it never start to feel that way? It's funny. Like I'm always using a second time round with Gupta as well. I just keep telling my, my code about how much easier it is. <laughs> I don't think it ever really felt good, to be honest with you. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves, Christian, to grow the business to the extent where we once had a board level conversation that we needed to be better at celebrating wins. Once I had like a bunch of sales team members leave the business because they thought we were rubbish and doomed because we weren't hitting some targets from the set. And actually, that day after that exodus of like folks leaving the business, we were like crowned the fastest growing software company in the UK. So we, we weren't so good at recognizing how far we come. I think I really bought into not knowing the world. I think a lot of the hype that I was seeing on like LinkedIn and on blogs, expecting everyone was running these, you know, sexy startups coming out of SF or whatever, and maybe not realizing actually we were doing an okay job. So it probably took us to at least maybe the second round of institutional funding. The first was a real slog to recognize we were probably onto something good. We ran our first like company retreat. I still remember that weekend really fondly now as a moment of just like, oh my God, like this is real. And we're actually, we're actually doing okay. Uh, but that was a good, good few years in that. Uh, it, it took a while. Let's talk about those first paying customers you were able to land. That's obviously something that all startups struggle with. So how'd you do it? How'd you pull off those first big deals? Yeah, I think it was, it's quite different both the new company and, and Paddock. So I'm worth kind of talking about both and some of the benefits of the pros and cons. So at Paddock, our proposition was quite different when we first started. So we had this real hypothesis, which I think the angel investors kind of believed in that selling software. And at the time, it was more digital goods as a whole than just software was too difficult, basically. And people were spending as much time building that out that infrastructure as they would actually working on their products. And our initial hypothesis was like a marketplace. In theory, marketplaces take away a lot of that pain. They bring you customers, they handle your payments, they handle your refunds, they handle the delivery of the product. So our first paying customers were people on this marketplace, actually. And it was quite easy to get someone to sign up to an extra channel. And the real game changer for us is when we realized that we could help a lot of these software developers very specifically not only sell their products on like the actual source that's also on the outside and direct and, and on our marketplace, but we really iterated and stumbled our way to more significant customers, to be honest with you. And there was a real period that we knew we were going through of lots of experimentation around what was the right business model. We tried like flash deals, we tried like this consumer-facing marketplace, but it was when we started powering that big infrastructure for those companies to actually sell their products like globally and outside of app stores using our our software that we saw real success, but it was an iteration. Like those companies we'd often done like a flash deal with then on the market, like saying convince them to use like our trials and licensing structure, because it was all desktop software focused on actually initially rather than SaaS, which sounds pretty mad today to say out loud, uh, but it was a really iterative process. And that's the complete opposite to what I found second time around with my new company called Goodfit. So Goodfit was born out of the way we were like going to market and selling and had actually like after a while, we established this really repeatable outbound machine and paddle once we really zeroed in on that infrastructure piece being the most successful thing. We were like outbound driven, 
at five years, it was our exclusive channel growing 500% year on year. The way we were doing that was with some really interesting kind of ways of using data. And I remember like at each round of our funding, they were as interested in like, this data set we were using to go to market as they were public self, which actually got quite frustrating at times. And it got to the point where the investors actually encouraged my head of RevOps at the time to leave our business at Paddle and productize what it is that we were doing. And he had like a queue of customers waiting to pay tens of thousands of dollars before he even started. And all I could do was just like, it's not normally this easy, man. Like you have, you have a wonderful opportunity ahead of you. So experience some quite different, different times there, I guess. One taking many years, the other kind of establishing product market bit before you'd even, even got started. And how do you think you pulled that off? Was it just because you had a deep understanding of the problem, so it was much easier to get product market fit right away? I mean, we thought we knew how companies should be going to market, right? We tried and tested that our paddle was stress tested it. Frankly, we were growing incredibly quickly. We talked to a lot of other businesses how we were going to market, and a lot of them were either trying to do that or thought that that was the future, having heard about it from us. So as you say, having done it ourselves and lived and breathed it, we basically got product for ourselves, right? And then recognize there was a real desire for that, for that elsewhere. Again, you're, you're kind of doing your user research and your feedback building and your validation. We're doing it by accident, to be honest. We were just being asked to talk about this stuff. But that's really helped us later down the line because we've established ourselves as very helpful and very open to talking about data and go to market within the space and real thought leaders. Again, all of this was kind of by accident before we even got going and got started, and um, which just made our lives a hell of a lot easier. On the inverse, Paddle started every year we did in the understart business model. We had zero interest, zero credibility. You know, uh, we weren't thought leaders or perceived as such. So, having built some of that stuff out beforehand, it certainly made our lives a hell of a lot easier. And second time around, yeah, I can imagine. I've got a bunch of questions on good fit that I want to ask, but I want to ask just a, a few more questions here on Paddle before we move on to those. So let's talk a little bit about the marketing philosophy. What was the marketing philosophy for Paddle in those early days and how did you see it evolve? Uh, that's, that's an awesome question. We actually didn't have marketing, like traditional marketing, and dedicated full-time employees and marketing for five years. We genuinely were running outbound sales, almost exclusively email with our phones for five years and growing to 3 percent year. We were doing marketing, like I didn't know it. Again, this was the first business I ever ran. Like there was product marketing, but there wasn't any like content strategy, SEO strategy. We didn't update the website in time to years on end. We were really, really good identifying people who were demonstrating some of the pains that we thought that we could solve and getting in front of them, getting in front of them without data was a core of that stuff. So we didn't have marketing for a long time. I think it was to our detriment. I think in the latter years at Paddle, we've invested a hell of a lot in brand, and this has been really helpful. And we see it impacting every stage in the funnel as well as just your like organic and mount of funnel. And this is something I think we've done a lot better in the latter years. I think on reflection, I've probably done that a lot sooner. It's just difficult to, to balance like investing and continuing to throw your livers amount of dollars at the channel that's working, whilst also investing in experimenting with new channels, I guess, or some of those investing in some of those kind of ideas and things uh, which are slightly less quantifiable or easy to attribute. Um, but it really clicked for us when we started even just turning up some events, being like, oh my God, everybody here, who we can sell to, nobody knows who we are. This would make things a lot easier. The yeah. it was money, right? Like that quality is quite helpful. So we didn't think about it for too long. And actually, the, the trigger to hire marketing wasn't even on the commercial go to market side. Again, having not done this before, not knowing what we were doing, we grew at an alarming rate for a number of years with a very small team. We were like 20 people, four years in max. 
And then at the time we did the Series B, I think, they were like, you can't keep growing like this. This isn't going to work. And rather than slowly, linearly growing the organization, we went from like 20 to 120 people inside six or seven months, which again, actually, these days, maybe isn't that extreme, but it certainly felt like it to us. And we actually hired a marketing initially to establish some level of employer brand for us to make that possible. And then things evolved from there. Long term, yeah, we've invested a ton in brand and we've got it and we're doing some pretty extravagant and then unique things, I think, in the market. And even like our account-based kind of go-to-market approach is super, super sophisticated. It really did take us a long time to get there. In terms of those investments you made in brand, are there any that you thought were going to be a hit and they just ended up not working? Yes and no. Like, again, it's really hard to quantify some of this stuff, right? I think you don't often get the immediate leading indicator that you're necessarily hoping for. When I think about how brands paid off for us more recently, it's like being able to end conversations conversations with big companies in markets. We haven't historically had any presence or success. And suddenly, you know, cold outreach, the conversation rate is increasing pretty dramatically. And like, is that that we're getting better at outreach? Is it that we're getting better at targeting? Or is it that we're actually starting to establish brand and presence in these regions so people will pick up the phone and all answer the email that we send them? And like, I think the thing with a lot of this stuff is that it isn't often you're interested within or, or that it's going to dry it, but it's actually going to be a steady build. But there are exceptions though, right? Like we run like an AI launch pad most recently, part of that was a part of despite not being there full time. And that generated a bunch of businesses on the platform that are already fast growing, which is great fun. So it's a real problem, I'd say. When I think through my conversations I've had with other founders, a lot of them in the B2B world used to have this belief that either brand didn't really matter for B2B or it was just too expensive. That's something that big, big companies worried about. Were those the reasons that you didn't invest in brand early on or, or what was the reason that you didn't invest early on? And then and what made you decide to switch and, and double down on brand? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think we probably fell into that category, as I said. It was like, we don't have a lot of money. We're trying to grow very fast. We have a channel that works. Why don't we throw more money at that channel? Like, was basically our thinking. And to be completely honest with you, the contrary thing to this is, I think Christian's been a bit more bought into it than me. Like, I think he really thinks a lot more of some of this stuff as an art rather than a science. I'm very much a kind of data-driven, like revenue and ops leader to some degree. And he's like this like mad creative guy, which is a, a nice balance to strike. And um, so he was really more willing to invest in some of this stuff earlier. I think evidence of that's our domain name. Like we, the first check that we got from uh, Angels, as I said, a couple of Mark Pearson, I think we raised, I can't even remember, like 200 grand USD. And at the same time, we also committed to buying us the paddle.com domain name for another $120,000. Fortunately, he didn't take out of the pool of money we raised. Otherwise, we'd have been much poorer, I guess. And he only transferred ownership over to us at point series there when we could pay for the domain. But we were willing to like fork out this big cash for like a domain and thinking we were going to be this big consumer-facing marketplace. And then as we were being to be, that felt like maybe not the best decision. We even got sued for patent infringement shortly afterwards. It was quite an expensive decision. But maybe that also led to the uncertainty. We've gone from at first thinking we're going to be this big consumer-facing B2B2C marketplace where we can need to have a heavy ground spent to slowly iterating our way towards recognizing we're actually a B2B Heavens infrastructure play. And maybe that you know, made us hesitate a bit, I guess. I think the biggest trigger to start investing in it, though, was as we've started to try and move, at least concurrently, target some slightly larger customers and also break into new markets and new regions. Like when you're the most expensive thing that people buy, other than maybe AWS, and when you're asking to rip out infrastructure that had in their business for many, many years and replace it with you, 
to handle all of their revenue and all of their transactions. Like trust and credibility is super, super important. So recognizing that I think was a real trigger for us to, to be honest with you, as well as an expertise brought into the business. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. How important was founder branding for you? Were you and Christian both really out there trying to build trust and credibility and evangelize the brand? Or were you both behind the scenes more and letting the product do the talking? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in the early years, neither of us particularly out there. And we didn't really know how to do networking or how to be a founder. And I remember sometimes coming back from like the one coffee we have every six months with the founder being, we should do this more. This is awesome. But we really didn't do any, we didn't attend any events we were solely focused on running the business. Christian, in the early days, more so on the product side, and more so on the revenue operation side. So we didn't do a lot at the start. I think as we moved out of independent kind of software developers and stuff, who we talked in the first place, which is kind of the background that Christian came from, where I think some of that stuff is also was valued a little bit less. None of them, particularly big businesses themselves, they kind of like the slightly more of the nature of things. So we started to move more and more into SaaS where we were competing with more companies, companies with bigger funds, bigger brands. We recognized the need to tell more of a story of our own. It was also the point in which we started messing employer around realized that the storytelling, both from the perspective of the problems we were trying to solve and the experiences we'd had, of that problem ourselves, as well as our own founder stories, were, were quite compelling. So we started to invest, particularly in Christian's kind of narrative and founder story, in those early days. And then over time, you, you need to kind of pull that back again, which is, I think, quite a weird experience for a Christian class because we kind of recognize that early stage startup that needs a payment solution cares. You were an early stage company once with a founder doing some cool things and something early. When you're standing into like the CRO or the CFO of a company processing hundreds of millions of dollars a year, they don't really give a shit. They just want you to solve the problems that they have really, really effectively. And again, that adjustment back to telling the customer stories and the pains we're solving rather than just the founder story uh, were quite interesting. Even the nature of the employees, I think, changed a little bit and the stories needed to tell them from an employer brand perspective. So it's probably interesting how that's kind of evolved. Whereas, again, a good thing is actually leaning on ourselves as industry leaders and our experience of this problem and of data and that credibility, which is driving pretty much all of our business today. Like the business is growing at 100% year on year. It's simply the network and customer referral. It's leading it on that experience. So I'm really seeing different marketing or, or investments, this stuff at, at different times. In terms of Paddle, at what stage did you really start to push that founder narrative out? And then at what stage did you really pull it back and switch to that more customer focused? I don't know if company stage is the right way to think about it. Like it would have been post series B, but it was all about actually the nature of the customers we were targeting and what it was they valued. Right. As we moved away from selling into um, these map software developers and desktop software developers who care less about brand, I guess, and more into SaaS whereby that was valued more or we were in a more competitive space, all that stuff was more important. It felt that that was a trade to investors. Like what does the customer actually need in order to buy, in order to get comfortable, or in order to find us in the first place? It was always grounded in what do we think we need to do in order to win or in order to compete, I guess. And so that was the kind of real, real trigger. What about the category for Paddle? Was it payments infrastructure and the niche was serving SaaS companies? Or how did you think about market category? I would say, like, when we first started Paddle, 
Nobody knew who we were. We were operating under this model called the Merchant Record model, which nobody had really heard of outside of, again, some desktop software companies globally. And we were really struggling because people were really associating us with payment predators like your PayPal's, your Stripes at the time, your Brain Trees at the time. And we did a hell of a lot more than just process payments. We recognized our, there was a lot more to actually selling a, a software product. And um, such as having taxes, currency, languages, delivering the products, handling us refunds, handling us licensing at the time, free trials or whatever. So we were really stuck because you don't really want to be a category of one. So I think we just navigated that awkwardness for a really long time. It's been a really long time trying to educate people why and how we're different and why pricing is different before we really started to invest in category creation, probably after the series. I think it was before the series between the B and C, basically, when we, we felt we had enough customers, enough people to tell the story, enough credibility in the bank to be able to actually have a chance of some category creation. And we spent a hell of a lot of money. I wish I remembered how much, or maybe I'm glad that I don't remember, trying to create this category called Revenue Delivery Infrastructure, actually. And I loved it. I was like, this describes exactly what we do perfectly. Tell an amazing story about this end-to-end in the sales process. We're going to have these revenue delivery advisors, external revenue delivery consultants, and revenue delivery is this problem that can be owned by the CEO. I was like, it is awesome. Best plan ever on paper. In execution, it was an absolute disaster. Like, we couldn't get any of the team to understand this thing. We were really trying to build, like, Kafka of one, which is incredibly difficult and wasn't working. And eventually, we just gave up. Unfortunately, I think the market helped us a lot. So some of those payment process in place, Stripe being a great example, I think to recognize that the point problem they were solving was indeed a point problem and actually selling software is, is actually more products and is, and is actually much broader. And as they started to broaden out their own product suffering, they started talking about themselves in a different way. And we kind of attached ourselves onto this payments infrastructure kind of category as they themselves started to, to think about it, which has been helpful. We still sold the problem in a very different way, albeit a capital group feels right. So there were some of them that's really trying to push that and our own category. And eventually just the market kind of gag. It wasn't a tidy story. It's been quite expensive. Uh, that's for sure. I remember spending like hours in boardrooms being like, describe what you do. Two sentences and getting very frustrated. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully that was helpful. Yeah, especially I think on the you know category execution not working out. I think a lot of founders have this idea of starting a category. They read Play Bigger and it sounds so sexy to do it. It seems like it's an obvious thing that you have to go do and go out there and create a category. But I think a lot of founders experience exactly what you experienced, that it's very hard to get the market to really embrace it. One follow-up question based on your, your category experience. How long was it before you decided to you know kind of retreat on that category strategy? Was that like, Three months? Was that six months? Was it two years? Like, when did you know it was time to backtrack? I don't think it took us long. I think probably six, six months or so. And when literally got no adoption even internally, let alone externally, that was kind of the sign. I think the thing I distinguished with, I guess, on a category creation versus not kind of debate what, what makes sense. I think if you manage to maybe not create a category of your own or attach yourselves to a newly emerging category, but it said, certainly attach yourselves to an opinion and a change in the way in which people work or a change in the way in which people do things, whether you're going to call that category creation or one comes out of that or not. I think it's much easier to be more successful or to win in that mind share of the people who are trying to drive that change and even to hire people, right? You can get these people, all, like for us, it was like, 
We think software is being sold wrong globally. Like we think so many amazing products never make it to market or they fail because people aren't trying to run their businesses in the right way. And it's not equitable. And this is, this shouldn't be how this works. Like if you attach yourselves to one of those changes in the way people are doing things, I think it's much easier to strike out attention and excitement and employees and like get very mission driven, even missionaries, I guess, in, in terms of some of your customers, as opposed to like, I don't know, the, the more you can position yourself in that way, the better. And it doesn't fit similar, right? Like we really think the way people are going to market isn't effective and all fit the purpose, quite frankly, in 2023 going into 2024. And really attaching ourselves to a change in the way which we're doing something that's a really effective way to sell and establish yourself within crowded markets. That probably comes before the ability to create the category, I'd say, because that is going to require a lot of investment, brand, et cetera. But that probably the, the iterations of, of both I'd probably be going through if I was starting a business again. Final Paddle-related question for you. If you reflect on the success that Paddle had, what do you think you guys got right? It's fine. Most people normally ask what we got wrong. So it's also harder to answer. I think the stuff that we got wrong. <laughs> I mean, hopefully a bunch, right? Like, I'm incredibly proud of the culture that we built, the weird, wonderful mindset of people we brought together to achieve what the business is achieving. I'm most proud of some of the people who've been in. And we definitely made some right calls there as well as some wrong ones. But I think the thing, maybe strategically, that we got right was we exclusively focused on software. Since we began, as soon as we started doing it, the beginning of well, the revenue infrastructure, as we call it now, the infrastructure, as we call it now. Whereas a lot of people in our space went a little bit broader. And that verticalization of SaaS as a trend um, is the one that's very popular. People kind of do paddle 4X or in, in lots of different ways, like even within our investors' portfolio, like Muse Systems is a great company that kind of does the paddle for hotels or MindBody kind of does it for gyms. And I think recognizing that that was the way software was going and deeply being able to solve for just one customer despite the temptation over the years to start expanding out or allowing them to start selling physical products or maybe looking into some of these adjacent markets too soon, I think really helped us to be honest with you. We, we really did try and chase the customer and instead got really, really good at narrowing in on the people who had a need for the product we had today and selling to them as opposed to broadening our offering to the extent it was unsupportable or indistinguishable or, or whatever. And I think that was that was cool. Was it obvious back then that SaaS was going to become as big as it became? Or was that a risky bet at the time? It was quite strategic, actually. And the data ground a lot of it. Like we were very good at sizing the market of desktop software, of SaaS, of offline software, uh, quantifying thus the number of companies that are in there and the revenue opportunities for it available to us, even the size at which some of those markets are growing. We were doing that better than the investors. This, the investors were desperate to get our hands on, on our data, to be fair. So I think we were quite good at quantifying some of those strategic opportunities. But the, the real way in which we realized it was a need for us, and we started to form opinions out on how like platforms weren't going to matter in the future, building models weren't going to matter, we still are quite bad. But I think that will be the case soon when people will do all sorts of managed stuff, like usage plus SaaS plus onboarding plus whatever. And like the thing that dragged us there was our existing customers. Some of them started with us as independent like software developers. And we sold their product one time for whatever, 50 bucks. Then they moved to SaaS. Then they moved to Percy. Then they moved to like Percy cross-platform. Then they added in usage elements. We kind of got dragged there by the market and our products had to follow them. And because we, we were so close to a lot of those customers and established such strong relationships with them, and we were so um, necessary to how they were running their business, it really helped 
layering the qualitative with the quantitative on where the company should go, which I think helped just make some of those those right calls. Amazing. Let's switch gears now. Let's dive a bit deeper into good fit. So I know we've touched on it throughout this interview, but I just want to ask a little bit about the decision to start the company in the first place. So after what, 12 years of paddle, I'm sure you were a little burned out. Did any part of you just want to take it easy for a couple of years, maybe go relax a little bit and recharge? Or did you know immediately that you were going to dive right into another company? I definitely didn't know. Honestly, this period was one of the most complex of my short life, to be fair. And I'm stepping back from a business that you've been running since you were like 17. In fact, Christian and I are actually working together free paddle on some paddle-esque ideas. But like stepping back from that thing in and of itself was terrifying. Like telling me off co-founder feels like you're like, I can't even explain like, the level of guilt you feel or like the, I don't know, the questions you ask yourself, like you're portraying your company when you're making that call were, were pretty, pretty bad. But for me, the reason to leave paddle, which is maybe interesting for the, for the, for the decision, was like, having just experienced running that company my entire adult life, I just was ready to kind of try and experience life through a different lens, like not as Harris and Apparel.com. And I became more intrigued and interested in that than like the Series D, which I was helping close to some degree, at least in the kind of data and the, the commercial side of things as I was setting out the business. So with that being the driver, I really didn't think I'd be working with the company for quite a long time. If it had already began, so... As I said, there was such interest in the data that we were using at Paddle and how we go to market that my, my best mate and head of Roberts had kind of been asked by the investors to leave and, and start this up. And he did so with my blessing. I was devastated because he was like my right hand in the business. I kind of quite as I to start. Also very happy to get him. I hired him straight out of uni and it's great duty available. And I was advising him since he began. And then as I, I stepped back, I really wanted, I spent a lot of time trying to think about where I was going to spend my time and what was going to bring me joy. I think not really felt like I had agency to decide uh, before, which is wrong, but kind of how I was feeling, if I'm honest. And I realized that the things that were going to bring me joy, something like Good Fit could actually deliver upon spending more time with my friends, continuing to learn, continuing to support others. And a lot of people, I think, assume that entrepreneurs just can't help themselves and start companies. But it's generally my expectation that I won't do another one after Good Fit. Remind me of that in a few years. Hopefully it was because I didn't decide Good Fit because I wanted to run a company again. It's like Good Fit because I thought it would be really cool to help my mate, to be honest with you, my best friend Alex, who is running it, and also try and give opportunities to a lot of the people that I've met over the 12 years who I don't think really got their fair shot or their equitable kind of outcomes. They're working together at Paddle or whatever. My head of was really being one of them. So I found that it's this amazing vehicle to help grow a, a lot of people and give back to a lot of people who've given themselves, I think, to me and Paddle over the years. And also work with some really cool people I never had the chance to. It was all about learning and growing with others as opposed to like necessarily being a business again. You can get in slightly less stressful ways, I think, if I'm completely honest. But that was kind of the trigger, I guess, to, to say yes. But again, I deliberated that for, for quite a long time as well. Obviously, with Paddle, you achieved what a lot of founders aspire to achieve, which is building a company that has a, a valuation of greater than $1 billion. Is that the intention with GoodFit here? Are you hoping to build a big, big company again? Or is the goal and the mindset to try to keep it somewhat nimble and a, a smaller team and, and really have more fun as you're building it or keep it smaller <laughs> so you can have more fun? Yeah. And I don't think small and fun are necessarily correlated. Like a lot of people, again, assume that a lot of founders enjoy the early stages, not the late stages. I actually much prefer the latter stages. Like trying to have to really operationalize everything and scan everything where I wasn't worried how I was going to get paid, uh, to be fair. 
Uh, I don't know if they were his link. It's probably just worth calling out. But yeah, we, we want to run in a very different way, at least for the time being. Again, I'm, I'm one of my drivers is learning, right? I've never run a small bootstraps organization. And I'd rather big BC backwards exclusively. So that was, that was one driver. We're also a remote previous company had, had headquarters. So some of it's learning, but a lot of it's optionality to be completely honest with you. Like I'm so grateful for the VCs to kind of have funded that learning, the network that it built to allow me to establish the credibility that we have a good fit. But this time around, frankly, just not sure if we want to run and grow a massive, massive organization. So I've kind of committed work backwards of my, my kind of thought of what it is we want to achieve and what, what time frame. We set ourselves very clear goals. We're very open with the distance about that we're all aligned towards hitting, which gives some really great clarity as to what we need to achieve and by when. And at that point in time, when we hit that number, I guess, or set of numbers, we're going to have another hard conversation. And I'm sure we'll actually give another look to it around what it's going to do. Do we want to grab and raise up a huge round? And do we want to think about, you know, partnering up with someone, maybe with some greater resources? Do I want to hire in some you know, full-time management team to run the business? But we're really aligned on how committed we are to it over what timeframes. And at least we have that, that optionality that once you get on the VC train, you can't get off, to be honest. So we're probably just reserving some of that optionality now. I do think I'd like to run it less resource intense because I think that I can. And I've learned a lot of, not necessarily steps, but learned a lot from the first time. When it comes to market category for good fit, what is that category? Is it go to market or what is the category? I mean, a great example of like, how do I, that's not particularly well defined. And at least we're attaching ourselves to a change. That was kind of like my prompt on that. We're trying to change the way which happens today. Like reps, normally junior reps given access to these big databases of accounts and contacts, asked to filter down from prospects and sell to them. But in reality, a lot of these people wouldn't anywhere in their old at what good looks like. And so even if they did, they offered another data available to actually prioritize the accounts that they're most likely to buy. So we're really changing the way in which people do things and that we're trying to start from the account level, actually, that map the market accounts you can sell to, enrich them with a huge amount of insight and data you need to use to really allow you to look for those companies that have the highest propensity to buy and that you want to spend your, your time on. I haven't named that category yet. I'm not sure anyone is doing exactly that, albeit some competition is starting to slowly catch up and slowly emerge. And um, so perhaps we'll let the category emerge. And right now we're, we're really focusing on the, the principles and our view on how people should go into market and selling into that as opposed to a main category. But watch the space. I definitely don't have the budget for it yet. Right. To be honest with you. What do you think is going to be key to good fit being a success? Like, like any good company. So again, we're actually at some offering to some, in some difficult macro conditions. We're a small, earlier stage company, especially very, very fast and have a good roster of clients already. Uh, it's always difficult. I think one thing that I said to my team is probably what I'd say to you guys, which is we have built an incredible team. Frankly, we have no right to have a team as good as we have. Um, and again, that's the result of 12 years of networking and hopefully doing right by a lot of people. I remember hiring our CTO, who's an ex-co-founder, who's also scaled businesses to tens of millions of dollars in revenue. And they're saying to my co-founder, I was like, again, this isn't usually that easy. You normally pay tens of thousands to an executive search firm, hope the person's good. And maybe not as opposed to just hiring mates. But I think ultimately we, we've cobbled together an incredible set of individuals with some amazing talents. And I kind of am confident we can work out anything that we need to along the way. And you're only as good as your team, to be honest with you. So yeah, I'm very happy with the team we've pulled together. And we'll, we'll work out the rest of that. Final question for you, since we're almost up on time. Based on everything you've learned from Paddle, from GoodFit, and just your other general life experiences, what's the number one piece of advice you'd give to a founder who's just starting out? I think the 
biggest skill which is probably underutilized or unrecognized the most is actually the level of self-awareness that's needed in the founder in order to actually stick it out right? to 10 years or so. It's quite rare that I think Rich and I, again, actually both of us have stepped back from full-time operational roles now after 12 years. But it's quite rare that you see folks go from naught to, to the living evaluation. Again, it happens sometimes. Um, but the only way in which we've been able to get there, I think, is recognizing where we need to learn and grow. And people really, really obsessive, obsessive about getting better every single day. But also just really knowing what we weren't good at and hire for those things or letting other people do them, even if you enjoy it. Like, unless you're able to look in the mirror and know what the board and probably how comfortable you continue to do or what you should be doing better or whatever, like, you, you're going to have some difficulty along the way. So try to be really vulnerable and honest with yourself and your team and your organization around how you're having to grow just like them. You have strengths and weaknesses just like them. And the more aware of those that you are, I think the more likely you're going to be able to succeed and build the best team you can around you and not get outgrown by your organization along the way. Amazing. All right, Harrison, we'll have to wrap here. This has been such an awesome conversation. If there's any founders that are listening in and they want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? I can catch you on LinkedIn. Um, just Harrison Rose on LinkedIn. You should see me on there. I'm, I'm posting one soon regularly. Uh, now that I've got a drive some demand for good fit, so you'll see me on there. And anyone's welcome to email me on harrison at paddle.com or harrison at good.io. Amazing. Harrison, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Cheers. It's been great fun. All right. Cheers. Bye.